everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I've been writing the blog Unpickled for the past seven years, starting on my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to tell your stories here. And if you're at all active on the recovery-friendly web, which is the umbrella term that's used sometimes to describe all things sober on the internet, the podcasts, blogs, secret Facebook groups, Twitter profiles, inspirational Instagrams, Facebook pages, support groups, wherever you find your support and your people online, chances are that there are one or two people who always seem to have the right thing to say or post exactly what you needed to hear when you needed to hear it or they just reveal a level of humor and insight that you appreciate. And that is exactly how I feel about today's guest, Shelly, a woman in one of the online groups I'm in who just seems to shine such a bright light. Her posts and shares and insights in our group have been so helpful to me, and I just keep thinking, I need to get this girl on the bubble hour. And here she is. So Shelly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jean, and thank you so much for the kind words. (laughs) <laughs> well, I do appreciate you, and I'm really glad that you uh, agreed to take some time and um, and share with, with the listeners here, because um, I, I know it takes an effort. I mean, I know that you're even probably staying up a little bit later than you wish you were at this moment, but <laughs> that's the gift of service. Yeah, this right? is late night. It's late night for me, but you know, the bubble hour and the online sober community saved my life. And so if there's anything that I can do in um, return, then, then I see that as my duty. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, you're doing it. So thank you. Well, let's start with your story. Tell us about yourself and about how the need to make a change presented itself. Well, my story is an interesting one. Um, my mom is in recovery, and she, you know, she went in recovery when I was maybe 17, 16, 17. Um, my brother was killed tragically in a car accident when I was 15, and oh. it was after that she went into recovery. But I can't tell you anything about her alcohol or drug use. I don't really remember it. I was a teenager. I was oblivious <laughs> to what was going on with her. And I, I often think about that when people – post about their own drinking and their teenage kids because I think, you know what, the good news is your kid's not paying attention to you. And so mm-hmm. I, was, I was pretty oblivious to what was going on with my mom, but she went into recovery when I was like 16 or 17, and I remember very clearly my dad telling me that my mom was going to go to rehab, that she had, had had this problem and that she was going to fix it, and so she was gone. I'm not clear how long. Um. And then at the end of her rehab period, she, I, now I think it was probably just a 12-step meeting, but at the time I thought of it as her rehab graduation. <laughs> and so <laughs> I went to her rehab graduation, and in that meeting, they talked about addiction um, in families. They talked about whether or not it was a hereditary trait, and they talked about whether or not people who had family members who um, who lived with addiction were more prone to addiction, and it scared me. And so my mom's time in recovery served as a deterrent for me. My sister and I talked about it at the time. My sister's 10 years older than I am, and we were both like, well, we're never going to drink. And she never did. My, my sister never started drinking. And so I was, um, like I said, 16 or 17. She was 26 or 27 and still doesn't drink to this day. Um, I didn't drink in high school. I didn't drink in college. Um, and when I graduated from college, it was the first time I, I can remember right, a, right around graduation, having a conversation with my boyfriend at the time about how maybe I'd start drinking now. And he said, no, I don't think you should. I don't think you should start drinking because he was going to live um, in a different state. And he said, I, I can trust you more if you're not drinking. If you're drinking, I won't know what you're up to, and you won't have any control. I just think it's a bad idea. And that, that relationship was a bad idea. But he was, he was right about <laughs> the, the idea because he was a jerk. But, um, but he, I, I think often about the fact that that conversation probably kept me sober another eight years because we stayed together for years after that. Um, And I didn't drink the whole time we were together. And so I didn't really start drinking until I was in my early 30s. 
And when I started drinking, it was because it was um, my symbol of adulthood. So when I turned 30, I was in the bathtub and it was snowing and it was my, like the last night of my 29th year. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be 30 tomorrow. I need to go get oil of Olay because I was <laughs> old as a, as a sex <laughs> So I, I, I had these, these things that were like symbols of this is the thing that's going to say that I am now this person. So oil of Olay was my, I'm now in my thirties. And I think alcohol came right along with that. Interestingly, in my forties, I said I was going to start reading the newspaper and drinking coffee and neither happened. But anyway, so <laughs> I started, I started drinking in my early thirties and um, I drank Smirnoff ice Twizzlers. I eat Twizzlers. I, I really do think that um, I know that I have a compulsion around sugar. And I think that in, in many ways, alcohol was a path to it. And mm-hmm. so even when I started drinking, it was, it was probably as much about the sugar as it was about the alcohol. And so every Friday night, I would have a six pack of Smirnoff ice and a family pack of Twizzlers. And I would buy um, the family packs that had the 10% more free on it so that I could have 17.6 ounces of licorice every Friday. <laughs> and, and I would like go out and find the, the 10% more free. I'd leave and go to another store. And so I was doing this every Friday night. And um, by then I had met my current partner, Brad. And one night he was there and he said, I can't believe that you eat all of those Twizzlers every Friday. And I didn't really like feeling judged. I thought, gosh, I don't know if I want him to know that I'm eating the whole family pack. And, and we didn't live together at the time. Um, and so I continued to do it every Friday. It was great. And then one night I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a health class, a health class from a local college was on, on our public access, access network. And this teacher said more than you um, think you should, if you're hiding it from other people, um, if nobody knows that you do it as much as you do, then you're probably an addict. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm addicted to Twizzlers. So so I I decided that I would start eating one ounce at a time. I was going to moderate the Twizzlers. And so I I looked at the package. I discovered that an ounce was three Twizzlers, and I was eating 17.6 ounces. And so I thought, okay, I'll put them in snack bags. So I bought all these snack bags, and I put three Twizzlers in each one, and I sealed them up and put them in my pantry. And I had eye surgery one weekend, one one Friday. I actually had surgery on Friday. And that Friday night, Brad came over to the house because he was going to stay with me. And I was like, no, 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 I'm okay. You can go home. And I went to bed that night. And the next morning, I got up, and I slipped on something. And I thought, what was that? And I looked, and the entire family room floor was littered with, with snack bags. I had woken up in an anesthesia-induced haze, eating all the Twizzlers. And so I was like, okay, I have a problem. I've got to quit. I've got to quit Twizzlers. And so I quit. Cold turkey, quit Twizzlers. And what's interesting is when I quit the Twizzlers, I didn't want the Smirnoff ice. And so I stopped the Twizzlers and Smirnoff ice. I lost 12 pounds in less than a month without making any other changes. And then I really didn't drink much again for a while. And so I was kind of off of that. And um, I work in higher education. And one week, my, I got a call. I was in a meeting and got a call from our basketball coach. And he um, asked me to come down, come down here, hurry, hurry. And I came down. I was in charge of the student athletes at the time. And one of our basketball players died. Um, an 18-year-old kid just oh. had a heart condition and, and died. And it was horrible. And it was um, right after practice, and all of the kids were there. And we couldn't find his emergency contact information. And so then we had to find his cell phone and call his mom. Just a horrible situation. So we were at the hospital for several hours. And on the way home that night, I thought, I've got to have a drink, which was strange. That was the first, that's the only, first time I can remember thinking, I need to drink in order to cure what ails me. And mm. I was standing at the store that night looking at alcohol. And this old man said, I don't know what you're looking for, but whatever's up there is not going to fix you. And I think about that now and I get goosebumps. It's just, man. Anyway, so um, that was probably the beginning of my drinking to feel better. And I I think now that, um, you know, some people drink to feel good, but once you start drinking to feel better, you're probably 
on, on a path to a problem. Um, mm-hmm. I was a solo drinker, and so I always drank by myself. I can probably count um, on one hand the number of people in my life that have ever seen me drink. And so I drank alone. I drank before events and after events, but I was never one to drink in public because I didn't want, I think now, I didn't want people to associate my drinking with my behavior. I wanted people to think that my, if I was crazy, it was crazy because I was crazy, not because I was drunk. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's difficult to see the problem when you're, when you drink alone, you know, like when, when you're drinking by yourself from the beginning, I think it's harder to see whether or not it's a problem. And so when I finally started asking myself, is this, is this becoming a problem? I did the online surveys. And when I got to the question of, do you drink alone? I thought, of course I drink alone. I live alone. <laughs> Who else am I supposed to drink with? I live by myself. And so I always just question. I thought it was such a ridiculous question. Um, and so as a result, I, I like the shame thing was really delayed for me because I drank alone. And like, I can remember doing an online health risk assessment at work. And they asked, how many drinks do you have a week? And I wrote 28. <laughs> so I wrote, I, it was a computer test. So I entered on the thing, 20, I have 28 drinks a week. And you got a score on this, this assessment. And I had a, like a 98. And then after I said I had 28 drinks a week, it dropped it to like a 72. So then yeah. I went to this meeting with all of my coworkers from across our district. And I told them that my score dropped to a 72 when I said I had 28 drinks a week. And, and what was funny was that their reaction was, you told the truth? Nobody yeah. said, you have 28 drinks a week. They were like, you told it the truth? You, you actually admitted to having four drinks a night? And so it still didn't really trigger that it was a problem. I, 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 I started thinking, I don't know about this, and I don't feel like I have control. That's what, mm-hmm. That was the bigger issue, was that I don't really feel like I'm in control here. So I talked to the benefits lady at my job, because like I said, I'm still in shameless territory. And so I went to her and I said, um, I wanted to know if you have a drinking cessation program, like your smoking cessation program. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, well, you know, we, we do these things for t- tobacco. Do we do them for alcohol? And she said, well, drinking is really a mental health problem. And so you'd want to go to your employee assistance program. And that was when I started thinking, and there's, there's, that's when I started feeling stigma. And that's when I started worrying about shame. Um, I was um, dieting all along. And so throughout my whole story, there's always going to be a background story about dieting and, and working out. And so by now we're in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. And I decided I was going to try the whole 30. I'd heard about whole 30. I thought I'm going to try this whole 30 diet and eat clean for 30 days. But I um, decided that I would do it and allow myself to have wine. And the wine wouldn't count because it wasn't smeared off ice, you know, like it was better for me. <laughs> it was a little healthier. <laughs> so I decided, well, I'll have wine on the whole 30. And I did it and I didn't lose any weight. And so I thought, okay, well, next time I'll do it and not have the wine. And it was so hard for me not to have wine. And I thought, well, man, this is not good. Why is this so difficult? And so as soon as the 30 days were up, I drank wine. That was the first thing. I had wine before I had sugar and was just so glad to be able to drink again. And so I thought, you know, maybe I do have a problem here. And I had been looking at sobriety memoirs at the time, looking at them on Amazon. But I hadn't found one that I wanted to read because they were all stories about mothers. And I I remember very clearly thinking, mothers drink because they are mothers. And (laughs) and being a mother is hard, and that's why they drink. And so I need to see whether or not there's anybody who's drinking who's not a mother because I don't have that excuse. And I came across Caroline Knapp's uh, Drinking a Love Story, and I read it, and I thought, oh, my God, this is my story. And so, like, I'm highlighting in my Kindle as I read it everything that related to me, everything that seemed familiar. And I thought, okay, I've got to stop drinking. And I texted a friend of mine. I have another friend who's sober now. But I texted her at the time and said, read this book. We have got to quit drinking. And she, she was also doing this Whole30. So we decided we'd do another Whole30. 
And the next time I did it without alcohol, and I felt really great at the end of 30 days. And I thought, I'm just going to keep doing this. And so I kept it up, and I was doing, you know, no sugar, no carbs, no alcohol for 11 months. I did it for 11 months. And at the end of the 11 months, I thought, you know, we're going on vacation next month. And I should probably start drinking now so that I don't get too drunk when we're on vacation. So, like, I reasoned this out, and I thought, I don't know, I know how I'll do this. I'll drink now, and then I can, like, just gradually drink my way up to vacation-level drinking. And so I started drinking. <laughs> it's so logical. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, by the time we went on vacation, I was able to moderate. But by the time we got back, I was a mess. And I thought, I got to stop drinking again. And I couldn't remember how I stopped. And then I thought, I'm going to go back to that Caroline Knapp book. And I went back to it, and I thought, I'll just read the parts I highlighted. And as I looked at it, I, like, highlighted everything except for and and the. Like, the entire <laughs> book was <laughs> So I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I've got to stop. So then I stopped for a couple of months and then started again. And it was just so hard to stay stopped. And that went on for a year and a half. Um, but at about a year, about a year after that, Brad and I moved in together. We actually relocated, moved cities, and moved in together. And I have not yet figured out what that did to me, but, man, it really ramped up my drinking. And I think part of it was sharing my space, which I hadn't done in 20 years. And I think part of it was that all of the sneaking became necessary now because there was somebody else in the house. And so it, I, I, because I was always a solo drinker, I, I didn't want to drink around him either. Um, but it was, it was difficult after we moved in together. And I was thinking, I've got to stop. I, got, I can't do this. And I met this lady. I'm, I'm standing out in my front yard in March of 2015. And um, this woman came over and she said, my name is Judy. And... Um, I live next door. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. And she said, I got sober 27 years ago in AA. I'm 70 years old, and I got sober 27 years ago in AA. And I thought to myself, I'm 43, and in 27 years, I'll be 70. And so maybe if I stop drinking now, I can be this lady when I grow up. Wow. um, Yeah, it was just so powerful. Um. And so I just, I watched her and I kind of modeled after her. And so I'm, I'm still trying to get my groove. Um, and then I had this, we had some contracting work done at the house. And I went that morning and bought Bud Light Limeritas, canned margaritas. <laughs> it's just like so sad to think your last drink is a canned margarita. But I went and bought <laughs> This 12-pack of Bud Light Limeritas, and I thought, I'll just have this. This will be it. I'll have this, and I'll be done. And I just drank all day, and I that had never really been my thing, day drinking, but I was off work, and these people were here doing the work. And Brad wasn't here, so it allowed me to drink by myself. And so I was drinking, drinking, drinking. And at the end of the day, they knocked on the door to tell me that the work was done and to um, have me take a look at it and sign off on it. And I signed off on it without looking at it. And that was, that was my rock bottom. That was my moment. It was like, oh, my God. I signed off on work without knowing that the work was complete. And that's not who I am. I've got to stop drinking. And um, so from that point, I started, I started reading this blog, The Six-Year Hangover, which is hilarious. And oh, yeah. I John read it all weekend. Right? Yeah. Yep. I read it all. That was a Wednesday. I read it all day at work the next day and read it all that weekend. And um, by that Monday, I was like, that's it. I'm not, I'm not going back. And the blogger had mentioned in his blog, one of the online sobriety groups, and I joined that group. And initially, I joined um, the Yahoo group and then eventually migrated to the Facebook group. And I just thought I'm going to watch these people for a while. And so after I'd been in the group for a few weeks, I posted and um, never looked back. Those people grabbed me by my hand and saved my life. I mean, they, they 
walked with me. I, it was it was pretty incredible. And so every evening, um, at at the time, I in, in the blog I was reading, everybody had talked about. 90 meetings in 90 days. And I'm like, I'm not going to any meetings because I'm not leaving my house because <laughs> I'm a bit of a hermit. <laughs> so I was like, well, I know that's not going to happen. So I thought, but what I can do is John mentioned this thing called the bubble hour. I'm a real podcast person. I'll listen to 90 of those in 90 days. And I just thought I'm going to listen to one of these every day until I, um, until I no longer feel the need to drink. And so I would wow. listen to the bubble hour in the morning and then in the evening, I would listen on my commute home, and um, yeah, and it saved me. And just having somebody talking me through my drive allowed me to drive past those places where I stopped in the past and bought stuff to drink. Um, and yeah, I, so between the bubble hour and the online recovery group and my next door neighbor, I, I just saw my life become something else. And now... It's easy. I, I said not too long ago, all those years that I was looking for a life hack, it turns out that sobriety was it, that sobriety yeah. was the life hack, that the way that my life can become easier is by not complicating it with alcohol, which is pretty incredible. Um, I'm an early to bed, early to rise person. I go, I go to bed at 8.30, 9 o'clock. I wake up at 4, 4.30. Um, I got rid of my scale. And so as a lifelong dieter, um, that was huge for me. I I often talk about how in early sobriety, how important I think it is not to diet. And part of the reason is because I think you can mix up what your goal is. For me, I would forget, like I would, I'd get started with dieting and not drinking as a part of that. And then I would think somehow that the goal was to lose weight and not that the goal was to quit drinking. Like the, I would mm. conflate the two. And yeah, so yeah I, that sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> So I got rid of the scale, and, and so for now, I'm, I haven't done sugar. I've um, been without sugar since October 15. I had to give it up because it was a compulsion. I am not somebody who advocates giving up any particular foods. I think you should eat what your body tells you to eat. But for me, the compulsions around sugar were exactly the same as my compulsions around alcohol. I mean, I would walk around the grocery store with a six-pack of cupcakes um, and, and think about why I deserve them. And I'd walk around and I would reason, you know, I had a hard day and that person made me mad and I just need these cupcakes. And then I live about two miles from the grocery store. I would eat four cupcakes between the grocery store and my house. And then I would hide the other two in the backseat of my car so that Brad wouldn't ask for them. So So all of it was was exactly the same. Um, And, you know, now I, I have a gratitude group that is, those ladies are just phenomenal. It's an incredibly active group, and I'm able to go to them not just with things for which I am grateful, but when I need advice and when I'm afraid and when things are good and when things aren't good, and um, know that I have people that are there with me. Um, I don't rattle easily anymore. You know, it used to be that everything was a reason to get upset, but what I've learned in sobriety is that being upset gave me a reason to drink. That I, I think that I needed to be angry and I needed to, to have things that bothered me because then I could say I have to drink because I got a phone call at 4.15 with some student issue and I am so upset about it that I have no choice but to drink. So now I'm like, if I don't get upset, then I don't have to worry about that. And so um, not much rattles me. I, I am really big on the only way out is through. And so I tell mm-hmm. myself that pretty regularly. In fact, I have bracelets made. A friend of mine contacted me and said she was making jewelry and said, do you have any quotes that you want? And so um, one of them that I got was fearless, which is my word of the year. And then I Love got it. the only way out is through. And I got um, what's coming is what's coming will come. I'll meet it when it does, which is a Hagrid quote from Harry Potter. Um, and then that I again, got Shelley. what's what, coming, what's coming will come and I'll meet it when it does. Uh, whatever's coming my way, bring it. I'll meet it when it gets here. And um, then my last is, is I, I will trust the evolution of my life. This is something I just started saying in the last few weeks. I saw it on Tumblr, I think, and I thought, man, I love that quote, that mm-hmm. I'm going to trust that my life is going to go exactly the way that it's supposed to, and and I can't control that. And so I can want and I can act in order to get those things that I want, but in the end, I have to trust that 
my life is evolving in the way that it should. And I'll That's tell wonderful. you, Jean, sobriety is, it's just great. It's, I, I, um, I talk all the time to people about how good things are for me. And not often do I say to people who, who don't know my story, and it's because I'm sober, but I truly believe that it's because I'm sober. And I've said to coworkers, you know, I'm not willing to get involved in that because I need to maintain my serenity. <laughs> and and I, so I'm not going to get bogged down with your drama. And, and to one person, I said, you know, my serenity, my sanity, my sobriety all depends on me refusing what you're trying to hand me right now. And so um, <laughs> how did that go over? So, yeah, I, how did they respond? She actually, um, she, I, I talk about her in my gratitude group as the complainer, capital T, capital C. And <laughs> she looked at me and she sat back and she said, well, I understand, but this is important. And I'm like, it's important to you. It's not right. important to me. And I'm just, you know, I, I can't afford, you know, I, I often say I, I can't afford resentment. I can't afford drama. You know, I've, I've only got so many coins and, and I can't spend them on things that are going to get me in a place where I can't rest my head at night. So You make it sound so simple. Do you ever, like, do you get sucked in accidentally, or do you find it just being very black and white about it lets you stay peaceful? I, um, I breathe. You know, if I find myself getting too tense about any particular thing, I um, do four, seven, eight breathing. I can't remember who it was. It's some Mark Weil, maybe um, some nutrition person had a video online that was breathing exercises, and so I've I've been doing that recently. I tried meditation for a while, but failed. I should I should try again. I guess I can't be a meditation <laughs> failure. <laughs> what is the four, seven, eight breathing? Tell us about that. And so he talks about um, you inhale for a count of four. You hold it for a count of seven, and then you breathe out through your lips for a count of eight. And when he does the breathing out through his lips, he purses his lips and and puts his tongue on the roof of his mouth and kind of breathes around his tongue. And so that's what I do unless I'm in a meeting because it makes a lot of noise. (laughs) Um, But, (laughs) yeah, so I I do that, and you do it for um, four rounds, and as you get better breath control you can do it for more rounds than that but I have found that it just calms me it really helps me to um to calm down and slow down it slows me more than anything else because normally if I find myself getting to a place where drama is getting to me I I can feel it physiologically I mean my heart starts racing I um I might get shaky I don't feel as centered as I would ordinarily. And so when I feel that coming, I, um, I turn to the breathing and it works for me. And mm. I did it prior to a job interview not long ago. I did it um, before a meeting with a student who I didn't think was going, that I didn't think was going to go well. And it's been very helpful. It sounds like you're quite open about your sobriety with the people around you. Is that the case? I'm open about the fact that I don't drink. Everybody ah. knows that I don't drink. Almost no one knows why. And right. so, um, you know, my partner knows why. But even some of my closest friends, you know, they, they know that I, I tell them things like um, I decided that I needed to give up things that triggered a more response, which is true. Mm-hmm. That for mm-hmm. me, anything that was that I consumed that triggered me to want more of it, I thought, this has got to go, which is how the sugar ended up going as well. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I don't talk to my coworkers about why I don't drink, but they all know that I don't drink. And and I talk to them about my food addiction. So I've talked to them about being a compulsive overeater, and I've talked to them about how the alcohol and food connected. And so they do know that there was a point at which I drank a six pack of Twizzlers and a family had a family pack of, a family pack of Twizzlers and a six pack of Smirnoff every Friday. They know that. And <laughs> so, um, but you know, I don't know that they judge it, which is interesting. Yeah. They know that yeah. story, but I don't know that it's ever occurred to them 
that both of those actions were a problem. And so right. when I tell the story, I think what they hear is, oh, my God, I can't believe you ate a family pack of Twizzlers. Yeah. <laughs> and not right. the, the Smirnoff part. Yeah. <laughs> Which is telling in <laughs> itself, too, because uh-huh. we normalize drinking so much. And yeah. especially Friday night, you know, well, it's just weekend binging. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very normal, acceptable behavior for a lot of people. And um, and some people can do that forever and not lose control of it. And that's exactly um, right. So they don't they don't understand that it's uh, it's the thin edge of the wedge for a lot of us and yeah. that it's only the start. I'm curious how your body has changed has your metabolism changed after um, removing alcohol and sugar from your diet now? Well, you know, I stopped sugar. I stopped drinking in March of 2015, and I stopped sugar in October of 2015. And there was absolutely no difference in my body for well over a year. And then in November of 16, I had a doctor's appointment, got on the scale, weighed more than I wanted to, was irritated about it, but didn't have a scale at home, so just had to live with it. In February of 17, so three months later, I went to the doctor and I lost 18 pounds. And oh. there was no change between those two appointments. And it's slowly um, over time. So, yeah. I, I mean, and it was like nothing over time and then then over three months. So it was kind of weird. Um, I posted, I'm going to, and an eating, a non-addictive eating Facebook group as well. And I posted recently that I went to the doctor um, and I've had the flu. I had the flu twice this year. And oh. I went to the doctor in February and I weighed um, my goal weight. And I was shocked that I weighed my goal weight. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I reached my goal weight. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know, my goal weight is only four pounds less than I weigh all the time. And then I thought, <laughs> I reached my goal weight because I haven't eaten for three days. So maybe this isn't such a great thing. And and what I realized was if I had a scale, what I would be trying to figure out right now is how to not eat. Like I need to maintain this flu diet. I need to stay Mm. on my flu diet, which is let's not eat anything for days on end. So I, um, yeah, I, I let go of all that and it's been um, so liberating. You know, it's changed my life because my mom was a dieter. I was raised on Weight Watchers. And so I've spent my entire life being obsessed with weight and with body and with, you know, my mom's a diva. My mom and I are pretty opposite in that way. And so, you know, um, appearance meant a lot to her. And that is not something that I expected as an outcome of sobriety to be able to let go of that was not something that I thought I would ever do. It's not something that I even thought I wanted to do, but mm-hmm. being able to let go of that has, um, has been absolutely liberating. I just, I feel like there's a lot of us that were sort of raised through that by that generation of mothers that, that through that era of the seventies where there was like tab soda in the fridge and they mm-hmm. were all on Weight Watchers. And my mom used to have these little boxes of candies called AIDS. Have you ever heard of them? This was before the AIDS <laughs> epidemic came in, which was probably no, horrible no, for, this, for this particular product. But they were these little like caramels or chocolates, and they were sweetened with aspartame or something that, you know, in the 70s, some chemical that we hadn't learned was horrible uh-huh. for us yet. And uh, and you could eat these to negate your cravings. And so as a, you know, as a teenager, wow. when when I ran out of things to eat in the house, I would dig into her box of these diet candies and anyway I just feel like it was so normalized and so then us mm-hmm. as little girls grew up seeing body shaming and self-loathing as being really normalized and the the whole diet industry is being very normalized and um and I I feel like we like I feel like I am coming to terms with some of those untruths that I was just sort of marinated in because of the time period I grew up in well, in listening to you talk, I, I can't help but to think, will these little girls, this generation of little girls, grow up with the same perceptions around alcohol? Because mm-hmm. that's what's normalized right now, you know? And so they're growing up with mom to tell them they drink because of them, and they're growing up with um, all of these things that, that glamorize alcohol for women. They're growing up with middle sister wine and, you know, all these things that are – just very pointed marketing attacks on women 
And I, I just think for them, will they, will they have the same issues around alcohol that we had around food? And the other thing I was thinking when you were talking about the AIDS candies is that my dad tells me that when my grandmother was younger, she smoked um, asthma cigarettes. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> so she had these asthma cigarettes. And my dad said that when he was a kid, he used to think, I can't wait till I get older so I can get some of those asthma cigarettes because I'll feel a whole lot better because my dad has really bad asthma. <laughs> Were they menthol or something? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so soothing. So soothing. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, I have written down a whole page full of questions as you were talking. You're just such a you're such an easy speaker, and you're, you're just so bubbly. You make me smile the whole time. Um, Caroline Knapp's book had a big impact on you. Are there any other recovery books that have been um, significant since? Do you, do you read a lot of recovery material, or what do you recommend? Um, I don't read a whole lot of recovery material. I do like the fiction. I like recovery fiction as much as I like memoir. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I really liked Best Kept Secret by Amy Hatfany. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I liked This Charming Man a lot, Um, Marion Keys. Oh, I haven't read that one. And both of those, oh, my God, it's fabulous. And and it has the the alcoholism story in that story is just one of several stories in that book. It's just one of several stories, but it is great. I just, it's what... It's one of my favorite books, regardless of, of the genre. It's it's a great book. Um, I really liked Girl Walks Out of a Bar. And so what I found is that the the current um, memoirs, and so Girl Walks Out of a Bar and um, Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to, forgot, to Forget, um, both have pretty significant food stories in them. And so they both start with, stories of sugar addiction for children. And and that's something that's of interest to me because I know that's my own story. I mean, I used to eat butter and brown sugar stirred up together in a teacup when I was a kid. <laughs> and so, you know, and so I, it, um, it interests me to see how many of us seem to have this story of trading addiction and the first addiction was a food addiction. I'm picturing um, like thousands of heads nodding as they're listening to this because <laughs> it is such a common thing, especially for women, such a common yeah. thing. Um, it, it, we're self-soothing, right? And exactly, um, it takes a lot of forms. Food being one of the, you're right, one of the earliest ones. And um, I just finished reading My Fair Junkie by Amy Dresner, and she's going to be on the show next week. And she talks about just playing whack-a-mole, going from one thing to another, from, Mm -hmm. you know, food to drugs to sex to um, shopping, just all these behaviors that soothe, soothe, soothe. But you're right, the food is such a common one. I'm doing no sugar thing now, but I'm addicted to sugarless candy, which I feel is, I mean, I I definitely keep it in my pocket and sneak it, <laughs> as you were saying, you know, if, you, if you're hiding it, <laughs> yeah, kind of a problem. I'm having a problem with the sugarless candy right now. Uh, I don't think that really counts as being sugar-free. Do you do any of that? Do you do fruit? Do you, or you're doing no refined sugar? What kind of level? What does your sugar-free Yeah, for me, it's just like? refined sugar. It's just refined sugar. And so I eat um, fruit. I eat lots of fruit. And I don't make any attempt at all to, to limit myself on, like, you know. So most days I have two clementines and an apple. And sometimes I have grapes. It depends on the month. You know, if it's summertime, then I might have summer fruit, stone fruit. Um and I I don't tell myself I can't because I don't feel like those are things that I have compulsive behaviors around. And so for me, it really was just about the fact that I was crazy. I, I, I told my mom, I'm like, I don't like the way I behave when I eat it. And she said, mm-hmm. she said, what do you mean? Are you mean to Brad when you eat it? I'm like, no, I'm not mean to Brad. I'm mean to myself. <laughs> I am horrible to my body. I just, I don't. And so, yeah, for me, it was about the behavior. Um, I listen to Overeaters Anonymous podcasts, and they often say, I did it for the sanity and not for the vanity. And that mm-hmm. rings really true for me, that that I, I, just like I talked earlier about feeling like I was out of control, 
with alcohol and that being a trigger, a, a realization that I had a problem was that I didn't feel like I could control it. I was the same way with sugar. Mm-hmm. And I don't eat wheat either. And I don't eat wheat because I, I figured out that I was just using it as a vehicle to sugar, much like alcohol. Okay. So I was going to ask that because I, bread, like yeah. I, I stopped doing bread too because I could yeah. eat a whole loaf of bread. Um, I, I would eat, if I had a hamburger for dinner, I would eat the other seven buns after dinner. Guaranteed. I would bread. stand at the toaster. Yes, and I would stand at the toaster, and I would toast one, and then when it came out, I'd put the next one in, and I'd put butter on that one <laughs> so, so that I could just keep them going like an assembly line. <laughs> so I'd eaten all of them. And um, so, yeah, I had to give up wheat. I can still eat rice, corn, and potatoes, and, and they don't make me want more. I can eat those yeah. and be done. But with bread, it was just bad. It was yeah. And so do you find now, yourself like, go ahead. Even I was now. Just gonna say, even now when I'm cooking for bread, I, I find myself craving the bread more than the sugar. Like if I'm cooking yeah. for him and, and he's having garlic toast, but I'm like, Oh my God, I wish I could eat all of the garlic toast. And I get really angry when he doesn't eat as much of it as I would. I'm like, <laughs> why didn't you eat more of this? You should have had more. You should have eaten some buns when you finished your burger. <laughs> Actually, my whole my whole um, thinking. I've been married for thirty years, and I've always thought, okay, it's a, it's okay, no matter what I eat, as long as I eat less than my husband, because uh, of course I'm steeped <laughs> in old time mentality that men eat more than women, and blah yeah. blah. And so, so then I'd be irritated with him if he wasn't eating, you know, proportionately enough, because <laughs> I felt like I. I wanted more, and if he wasn't having more, exactly. So I, I've tried to stop comparing. <laughs> oh, the silly things we think. He's speaking of mm-hmm. Brad. Has he noticed a difference in you? What does he see as having changed in you? I don't know if he would be able to pinpoint it, but we had this conversation right around my one year. It was actually um, it was eleven months after I'd gotten sober. And we we went on vacation. We were in San, San Antonio. And he um, decided to go to a bar and drink with strangers on his birthday. And I was livid. I was so angry. And so when he came back to the room, I told him I was mad. Well, no, actually, that's not what happened. What happened is I went to find him. And when I went to find him, he was standing outside of some bar playing Hotel California air guitar. (laughs) Standing outside of his bar. And he's like dancing around, playing his air guitar at a Hotel California. And I called his name. And then some drunk guy who we met at the bar is like, hey, is that your girlfriend? And so he turns around, he sees me. He's like, oh, my God. So he comes with me. And the whole way back to the hotel, I'm just ranting. And so we got back. And I calmed down. And later I told him. I think I need you to understand what sobriety means for me. And sobriety is not just about not drinking for me. It's about not feeling like that. I don't ever want to be that angry. I don't ever want to be on a rant about something that you've done. I need to to make sure that I um, am controlling my emotions to whatever degree that I can so that I am not in a place where, I feel like I'm out of control. I, 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 you know, so, I mean, of course, we're all going to be out of control. Our emotions do what they do. But I don't want to be a contributor to that. And so I need you to understand that you can't make me feel that way. And, and then we have this really long conversation about sobriety and, and about um, how it's, it's not just about not drinking. It's about behaving in such a way that, that I don't feel like I need to drink. It's about managing my life so that alcohol doesn't become a solution, you know, that, that the solutions are in my everyday sort of behavior and in the things I do. I can, I can find gradual solutions um, to issues as they, they come about as opposed to waiting until the end of the day and trying to drink them all away to escape them. And mm. after this conversation, he said, you know, I think that I like the sobriety thing <laughs> and he's not sober and he's actually not, he's a pretty normal drinker. He's, you know, he goes to sports bars. He never drinks at home. We don't have alcohol in the house. 
And that's not because I've asked him not to have alcohol in the house. He's just social. And so he and I are pretty opposite in that way. Um, but, yeah, he, so when he said I like the sobriety thing, I don't think he meant for him. But he meant for me because what, it, what I think it made him realize is this isn't going to happen anymore. I'm not going to yell and scream and be angry and march down the street to find you playing air guitar. We're getting ready to change some things here, buddy. And we've, we've been together for a really long time um, and didn't live together until recently. And so that first year, I think, um, had some challenges for both of us in terms of just learning to share space and learning to be together all the time as opposed to just on weekends, which was pretty much when we'd seen each other in the past. Um, But yeah, and so he respects the fact that I don't really want to do much, but I never wanted to do much. I was probably more willing to do things before because I would drink beforehand in order to tolerate them and then drink after so that I could sleep. Um, and so now if I don't want to do something, I say, no, he's very accepting of that. He comes from a hard drinking family. They drink a lot when they're together. And so when I am with them, um, he knows that I'm, I'm only going to stay there for so long that I'm only going to tolerate it for a little while. And when it's clear that people are becoming drunk, I'm going home. I, Cause I have no desire to be around a bunch of drunk people. He's one of nine. And so <laughs> lots of siblings, lots of, nieces and nephews and you know it's easy to have 35 drunk people <laughs> if, if they're all together um and so he knows well, the nice that, thing about a group that size is it's easy to slip out too right it's that's easy exactly to right yeah nobody away. misses me <laughs> and, and we take separate cars we we almost always it's very rare that we go to a gathering of any sort in a car together and it's because we both know that when I'm ready to go, I'm leaving. And so you can either take me home or I can have my own car, but, but I'm not going to stay here one minute past the time that I want to. And that um, was exactly and he that. how we got through a lot of first few years of, of my sobriety too. And I think it's a fantastic way to go, mm-hmm. especially if it's, if it's good with everybody ahead of time, why wouldn't you? I think it's so smart. Exactly. Um, one part I of wondered, the story that I didn't, I was going to say one thing that I, I didn't mention. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to, and it's kind of sad. So Judy, my next door neighbor that I told you about, passed away in December. And um, she was actually struck by a car while walking her dogs and um, killed right here in our subdivision. And oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Absolutely broke my heart. I was pretty devastated. Um, I, I have used it as an opportunity to to reflect on my friendship with her and to learn some things and to um, and to think about where she was in terms of her headspace at that moment. And what I know is that she wasn't resentful and that she wasn't angry and that she wasn't thinking about some email for, from somebody that irritated her because that's not the way she lived. Mm. Um, and so I just... I, I told another neighbor, I said, I feel like I owe it to her. I said that she was always a teacher for me, and I feel like I owe it to her to figure out what I can learn from this this moment. And so when her kids came to clean out her house, I told her oldest daughter, I said, your mom got me sober. And she said, me too. And, oh, my God, we both just bawled. And then a few months later, maybe a month later, um, when her younger daughter was at the house and she was cleaning the house and I asked how she was doing. And she said, you know, some days are better than others. And today I'm just really angry, but I'm glad I got to a meeting this morning. And I didn't know either of her daughters was sober. And she said, I'm glad I got to a meeting this morning because it makes me feel a, a little bit better and I can come over here and clean these things out. And she said, it's just not fair. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, life on life's terms. Right. And after I walked away, I thought, is there really any worse version of life on life's terms than you lost your mom, who was perfectly healthy because she was hit by her car walking her dogs. And, and I, you know, it was, it was powerful. It was such a powerful moment. I texted her because I had her phone number and I texted her and told her that I was glad that I um, run into her. And I thanked her for her mom's presence in my life. And, she wrote back and said, I am so grateful that my mom got to know you. And so it's, it's 
been an evolution. It was, um, we, we came full circle and she taught me things from the beginning and she taught me things in the end. And, um, yeah, incredible, incredible lady. I'm so glad I got to know her. I feel like she was sort of your guardian angel there. She was, I she was, completely uh, you agree. placed together for a reason. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. I'm, um, you've, you've been affected by some pretty significant losses throughout your life. Um, your brother and, and, um, this friend and, uh, the young man you talked about at, at school, um, You've gone through some pretty hard things, and yet I hear joy in your voice. And um, how do you stay joyful? How do you stay happy in the face of those hard things? Um, I, I first I come from a really happy family. My family is pretty incredible. But I also think that um, happiness is exactly where you look for it. <laughs> and so that's what I've been trying to tell the complainer at work is that. You know, you, you, we generally find what we look for. And so if we're looking for things about which to be negative and things about which to be unhappy, guaranteed they are there. They're always there. But if we're looking for the good in things, then, then we can generally find them. And what I have learned through the practice of gratitude is that I can find the good in really horrible things. I remember one time being stuck in traffic on the interstate and there was a car accident, like, I don't know, maybe five cars ahead of me. And it was 100 degrees out. And and I was on my way home from work. And so, you know, it was the end of the day, and I wanted to get home. And just when I felt myself getting ready to complain, I pulled my phone out, and I went to my gratitude group, and I posted that I posted a picture of the traffic ahead of me. And I said, I'm grateful I'm not in that car accident. I'm grateful that I have air conditioning. The car ahead of me doesn't. They've their windows down in this 100-degree heat. And, you know, I'm grateful I bought a charger today because I'd had a meeting and, and stopped and got a phone charger right before that meeting because mine had broken and for my car. And so I got great, grateful I have a charger. I'm grateful that I have books on my Kindle that I can access via my phone. I'm grateful for modern-day technology. I'm grateful that it's Friday, and so even though I'm going to get home late, when I get home, I don't have to go to work tomorrow. But even in really horrible, ugly situations, there are some things that if you look for them are pretty doggone great, and you can flip the switch on how you feel if you look for those things. I had a, even last week I had a moment I um, had an interview, had a phone interview for this job or a Skype interview, and I felt really good about it. And so I was on this super high high. And then right afterwards, I got a text from a friend who had been laid off saying that she had an interview that afternoon, and it was for the same job. <laughs> oh, and no. So I, yeah. So then it took my high, and it just plummeted to a low. And then I had a presentation to give that afternoon, and I was nervous about it. And then I went in, and I gave the presentation, and it was great. But before the presentation, I posted in my, in my gratitude group, and I said, you know, I'm grateful that I had an opportunity to interview. I'm grateful that it went well. I'm grateful that my friend has an opportunity to interview. I'm grateful for the knowledge that things will turn out exactly the way that they're supposed to. You know, that in many ways, being able to find the thing that's good um, helps you not to not even look so much at the things that aren't good. Because once you see, oh, my gosh, there's all this good here, you're like, how can I complain? How can I complain when in the face of this bad situation, I have been so blessed as to have all of this goodness befall me? Isn't gratitude is so amazing in that regard. It really is. It's transformative whether you're sober or not. I mean, for listeners Mm -hmm. who are just trying to figure out how to get unstuck or or trying to get sober and don't know how or trying to make their life better, one great way to start is write down three gratitudes every morning and every night. And and it doesn't have to be profound, right? Shelly, I'm sure there's been days That's where exactly right. it's been, uh, I'm grateful I have all my teeth. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other day it was, today was a weird and irritating day and I'm grateful that it's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does your gratitude group do check-ins? Do you, is that what you do? You post once or twice a day yeah. or yeah. yeah yeah we we check in and and um we interact with one another and so 
it's been an opportunity to really get to know one another well, which has also been nice. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Connection makes such a difference. I mean, even it really you, does. You like being home. You like being alone. You go to bed before most of the rest of the world. So <laughs> having those connections, uh, you know, available and convenient to you, I think is just so wonderful that you found a way to fit that in. And I know personally how much you give back because I see um, just things that you share and, and uh the choices you make and what you share and what you say. And it, I, I learn a lot from you. So, so I know that you uh, give a lot and when you need something, you ask for it. And I think that's really cool too. Um, what else do you do to support your recovery? What, what sort of things have you worked into your life to support that? Um, do you go to meetings or do you listen to meetings or any programs that speak to you or anything like that? No, I don't go to meetings, um, and I don't listen to meetings. I listen to the bubble hour. Um, I exercise. I'm a pretty devoted exerciser and find that that working out helps me to um, be measured throughout the day. You know, what I tell people is I am a high-energy person, and if I'm high-energy and in a good mood, then it goes great. But if I'm high-energy and not in a good mood, it can go sideways pretty fast. And so mm-hmm. right. um, working out helps to keep – yeah. And so working out helps me – I work out in the morning, and it helps me to stay on an even keel throughout the day. Um, and so the Bubble Hour, our online group, my gratitude group, um, reading, exercise, which I consider to be a huge part of my recovery, um, is really – about it. I try to, I I make it a point to go through our online group daily and make sure that I'm learning from everyone else because I feel like there's so much to learn from the people who give there. And then stopping to to congratulate people for milestones and to um, say a few words to people who post daily of of encouragement when I think it might be helpful to them. Um, You know, there's some people who I've known in the group over the years who I know their story. And so those are people who I, if I see them there, I want, I make, I make it a point to interact. Um, but one of the things that I said to another person in the group in, in the early days was I need to never go a day without posting here. I need to, for the rest of my life, say something in, in this group or in the gratitude group um, to stay engaged because this is my recovery program. And Mm -hmm. this is my meeting, you know, and so for people who go to a meeting, realizing, you know, I don't have that and I need to figure out what I'm going to have instead. um, That once I had that realization, I pretty much committed to this group is going to be a part of me for a really long time. Um, Funny story. When I was at Judy's funeral, I actually had a conversation with some people who um, were in her home group who invited me to a meeting and at that moment, it seemed like a really good idea. I think just because I was overwhelmed with sadness. And I, I even said to the lady, yeah, I want sober friends. And I saw you guys and you were friends. And, and then I, I wanted friends. And so I gave her my number. And then afterwards she texted me. And then I'm like, oh, I don't like people. What was I thinking? I'm not, I'm not leaving the house. <laughs> and so I texted her back. And I'm like, yeah, I really doubt that I'm ever going to come but I have your number and I really appreciate you texting me so that if I ever need you I trust that you will be there but yeah I I do think that for me and I think for a lot of people part of it is knowing yourself and having a pretty clear idea of of environments in which you thrive and um so yeah Judy and I talked all the time about she'd say do you want to come to a meeting and I'd say do you want to join my online group and we'd laugh because she wasn't a big internet person. <laughs> because there is, you know, there's a fine line between knowing that you don't like going to things and isolating, right? So you That's exactly you make right. sure you don't isolate because you stay mm-hmm. connected to the group, but you also know that um, going out isn't isn't what you want. But um, I think it's important for listeners to know too that um, you can't have it both ways, kind of thing. Like connection is such. Mm-hmm. It's not just an important part of recovery. It, I feel it amplifies recovery in untold I ways. I mean, um, so I'm so glad that you found a way to connect that works for you because I just, I 
I love your story. And I, this hour has flown by as fast as I knew it would. And um, <laughs> I just, I can't I'm believe so grateful. Over. I know. And I'm just, I'm so grateful you're here and I'm, I'm really glad we're connected and, and I thank you for sharing your stories. And before we sign off, I just wonder if you have any sort of words of wisdom or anything to say to our listeners or anything to encourage uh, anyone who's listening today and wants what you have. I will say that I had this revelation the other day when Jordan Peele was accepting his Academy Award for Get Out and he said, I quit this screenplay 20 times because I just didn't think I could do it. And I thought to myself, he said he quit 20 times, and then he committed, and then he won an Oscar. And Mm -hmm. to think, you know, you haven't failed. As long as you're continuing to try, as long as you're continuing to believe and commit and figure out a way to make it happen, you haven't failed. And and that that was a revelation for me, and it made me feel really good, and it made me think about, our journeys and all of us who've had a thousand day ones until the one that wasn't, you know, until the day that you finally stopped and you stayed stopped. And so I would encourage people not to give up if you're um, still fighting this battle and you're trying to figure out how to, how to do this. Um, And then my other encouragement would be to connect to, you can find online, connect with people. Um, I tell people that it, that yes, you can lurk, but eventually, I, I think it's helpful, even if you only comment but don't post, I think it's helpful to engage with people. Um, I have met so many people in person from our online recovery group because I, I like people once I know them. I just don't like strangers. And so, <laughs> and so from our online recovery group, there are so many people that I have had the opportunity to meet and I have not once been disappointed. They are incredible people. And and I just, you know, there's something to this whole sobriety thing. There's something to people in recovery, somebody who's fought a fight. There's something to someone who's fought a fight and come out on the other side. Well, that's perfect. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Shelly. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. And um, listeners, if Shelly touched your heart today, and I'm sure she did, if you want to send uh, a word of gratitude to her, maybe that can be your first act of gratitude, feel free to email uh, to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that Shelly gets your message. And um, if you, oh, I always have wise things to say at the end, and I just rattle them off, and they've all just left my head right now. Anyway, (laughs) thanks, everyone, for listening. (laughs) You know where to find us. This is the Bubble Hour. And email and uh, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all the stuff. That's it. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. So until next time, please take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Weakness head on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies behind We think you're strong
just want to be free. 